0: Well, do me a favor and track down a Bible if you can and get with me to Luke chapter three, Luke chapter three. We're starting a new series titled Jesus is Greater and over the course of several weeks we'll be thinking through how great he truly is. So Luke chapter three, I'm going to read the text along with you, we'll pray and then we'll get to work. Luke 3, starting in verse <clears throat> 1, reads like this In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Ituria and Trachonitis and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of the Lord came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation." John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized, teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't don't extort money, and don't accuse people falsely, be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water. But one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his, his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. But when John rebuked Herod, the Tetrarch, because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my son, whom I love, With you, I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Amen, Amen. let's pray. Lord, we ask right now that you would take this word by your spirit and we would hear your voice. Lord, we pray as we consider who Jesus is and what he has come to do. Lord, would you incline each of our hearts to worship him, to place our faith in him and to to experience salvation. So Lord, we commit this time to you and uh, we ask for your blessing on this time in your word, please, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, all right, here we have two voices, two messages, and one effect. Two voices with two messages, but one effect on the hearers. The voice, the first voice, is the voice of the prophet, the voice of John the baptizer. Now, John the baptizer is speaking, and this is kind of an interesting thing because God has been silent for so long, so for hundreds of years now there has not been a word from the Lord but then we get this inbreaking of God and his speech and we're given this incredible timestamp in verses 1 and 2 it's telling us that in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius of Caesar and it goes on to describe all these other individuals you've got Pontius Pilate the governor Herod the tetrarch his brother Philip Tetrarchanitus Lysanius Annas and Caiaphas you've got all these different individuals and basically what it's saying is this really happened you can go and you can look into it there was a specific period of time in a specific region when this occurred God spoke through this individual named John the Baptist so this word of the Lord comes and it is in verse 2 the word of God came to John son of Zechariah in the wilderness God is speaking again And he's got a very important message for the people then and for us now. God is communicating to his people. This is the word of the Lord. And John then had this preaching ministry of declaring God's word to the people. Verse 3, he went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John has a ministry, it is a preaching ministry, he's out in the the wilderness and he is declaring to people there is a need for them to repent, to experience a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. We're going to unpack that as we go, but the essence of the ministry then is John is making people aware of their need for God's saving work. They need to experience a baptism of repentance, a cleansing from sin for the forgiveness of sins. Now, all of this is in fulfillment to some expectations. In fact, we're we're told about Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet of old, and John's ministry is the fulfillment of this prophecy of Isaiah. Look at verse 4. As it is is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness. So, So John understands his ministry. The people understand his ministry. Here's what it is. John has come to fulfill what Isaiah was talking about hundreds of years previous. There's one coming who is going to get people ready. There's one coming who's gonna declare a message that is gonna set up the work of the Messiah. Um, There's one coming, he's the forerunner, if you like that language, he's the forerunner to the Messiah, and John understands his ministry to be exactly that. Isaiah said it, now this is coming true. There's preparation for the saving work of God. Look at it in verses 4 and 5. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight, the rough ways smooth. He is getting people ready. And what does that look like? It looks like a level playing field. He is the the hills are coming down, the valleys are coming up, and it is an even playing field. In my house, we're getting ready to do some flooring in the basement, and uh, it's a, there's a lot of prep work because I don't want to I don't want to waste my time or money trying to get everything set and ready, and then have the flooring not work. And so there's a need to level the floor, and so you get the self-leveling stuff, and you mix it up, and you put it in the the little you know valleys of the floor that you wouldn't notice if you're just looking at a surface, but my wife was like, how do you figure that stuff out? I was like, well, you just get a really big stick that's flat, and you find out the places where it dips down underneath it, and you fill it in. And that's the work of John the Baptist. He is level, he's leveling the playing field for people to come to the Savior. He's saying, look, it doesn't matter if, later on I'll say, it doesn't matter if you're a descendant of Abraham. It doesn't matter if you consider yourself to be a really good person. Everybody comes before this Savior in the same posture. We'll unpack that in just a minute, but this is the ministry of John the Baptist. He is preparing people for a Savior. He is getting people ready, and he has a message. The message involves a few different elements. It involves judgment. It involves ethics, and it involves salvation. It involves judgment. He's saying, look, there's a day coming where God is going to evaluate the hearts and lives of every person. Look at verses 7-7. To 9. The judgment comes in this form. He said to the crowds who were coming out to him to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The ax is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. He's saying, there's a day of judgment coming, and it is at hand. And it will look like a person clear-cutting a field because it's no longer producing anything good. We're at a tree farm, and uh, my parents own this Christmas tree farm, and every year they plant seedlings, and then they tend to these seedlings, and they, They do different things. They spray them, they treat them, they mow down the the rows to keep weeds back. They do all kinds of different things. Every year they trim them, they, they shape them so that they look like a nice Christmas tree. And then several years down the road, when the tree grows about a foot a year, people come out and they start cutting them down. And we leave fields up for as long as we possibly can. We leave trees growing and eventually you get to a point where the field is very sparse and you're looking at the trees that are left and you're thinking there's really nothing good left over and we can't really use it for you know, greenery, we can't cut the branches off and use it for other stuff. You get to a point where you say, we have to clear cut this field. We have to make way for other seedlings to be planted. We're gonna go out there, we're gonna chop everything down, we're gonna gather up all that stuff that's left and we're gonna burn it in the fire. And this is what John is talking about. He's saying there's a judgment coming where God is going to evaluate and if you've not, if you've not been fit for, for the works of God, if you've not produced a good result, you will be clear cut. You will be judged. Now, one of the things that people often do and they did this in John's day, would, they would say, well, no, look, I'm, I'm not going to experience judgment. So imagine with me a tree. If they could think or talk or whatever, they would say something like this. The Williams love me. Look at the amount of work they've put into me. They have planted me. They've cared for me. They've tended to me. They've trimmed me. They've sprayed me so that insects don't want anything to do with me. They've sprayed so that the weeds don't want anything to do with me. They've done all this work over all these years. They would never judge me. They would never cut me down. And here we're being reminded that is a mistake. Just because you are Abraham's descendants does not mean that you get off the hook of judgment. He's saying, look, people, you need to understand that God's judgment is coming. And you need to be the kind of person who is producing this ethical way of life. That's the second thing that he talks about here. He talks about ethics. He's, it's the answer to the question, how should we live? And verse 10 puts it very Clearly, it says, what should we do then? How should I live? If there's a judgment coming, if God is going to evaluate my life, what do I need to do? How should I live? And we actually here get multiple case studies in ethics. We get all these different groups, and John is applying the word to each of these different groups. You've got, you've got generosity in general. You've got ethics as it relates to tax collectors, and then soldiers, and then a king. You have all these different case studies. Generosity. If you have stuff, you should give to those who are in need. If you have extra clothes, you notice somebody else doesn't have clothes, give to them who are in need. Same with food. If you have extra food and you see somebody who doesn't have any, you should give to them. You should be generous. There's an ethic of following God that results in our generosity. It goes on to talk about tax collectors. They say, well, what do we need to do? Look, we have, we have a different way about us. We've got this, all these other expectations on us. What should we do? And he says, look, don't collect more than you have to. Ethics for you looks like caring for the people that you're serving. This applies to salespeople and businessmen and women. We need to be careful that we don't take advantage of our position and disadvantage other people. He's saying, look, when you're collecting, don't take more than you have to. Don't disadvantage those that you're serving. Look after them. Take only what you need. What about soldiers? What about us? What do we do? And he says, look, don't don't, don't extort people, and don't accuse people falsely. What is this talking about? You have authority, and you have a unique privilege in that position that you hold, and you can take advantage of that so that you can get more money. You can accuse people, and what, what would happen then? They'll bribe you, and you'll fill your pockets. So ethics for you looks like taking care of the people that you're serving. What about kings? We, hit, we get a, a negative example here of King Herod, and and it tells us that he does not like this ethical way of God, and he does all these different evil things, and John rebukes him for his marriage, and he rebukes him for these other things, and and he adds to that this additional activity of wickedness, which is to throw John in prison. I don't like what you're saying to me. I don't like your expectations for me, so you will be incarcerated for it. So you have this message of ethics. Now, Is that really what John has come to do? It's important, and I believe in ethics, and we need to be teaching them, and we need to be helping people think about that question. How should we live? But is that really what John is up to here? I just want to tell people how to be good people. That's what God really wants. He wants a bunch of, you know, goody-two-shoes people walking around following his commands. No, no, no. Judgment and ethics really is a precursor to salvation. What he's doing is exactly what Isaiah described. He's preparing a people. He's getting them ready. He's showing them the expectations of God so they might realize, I can't do that. I can't live perfectly. If there's a judgment coming with a righteous and holy God, me trying to be a good person is not going to be sufficient. He's preparing a way for the Lord. He's getting people ready for a savior. He's not doing anything really that novel. It's not like he's inventing new rules. What is he doing? He's actually just reapplying the Old Testament. Over and over again in the scriptures, God would say to his people, here's a law for you. If you plant a field, the way you plant and the way you harvest needs to be with a consideration of the disadvantaged. Leave stuff for those who are poor. What is, what is John doing here? He's just saying the same thing over again. He's saying the ethic of God requires that we would live in a way where we're generous with other people. The ethic of God means that we would take care of people. So here's part of what his message is. Better rules will not solve our problems. Better rules won't solve our problems. My birthday's coming up this week and uh, somebody, I I was talking to somebody, they said, what do you want for your birthday? And they were just messing around. They said, do you want world peace? Like, yeah, that sounds wonderful. If you could get that for me, that'd be great. But, here, but I was thinking this morning, how could we get to a place in our world where there was peace? Like, if that were really an option, if I put that on my wish list, hey, guys, I want world peace for my birthday. Can we, come on, get that thing going for me? What, what would that entail? What would it look like for enemies to lay down their arms? What would it look like for political adversaries to embrace? What would it look like for the world to be full of peace? And how would we get there? Do you think legislation will get us there? Do you think that better rules will get us there? Do you think that telling people what they should and shouldn't do will get us there? No. What we need is God's salvation. See, the judgment of God and the ethic of God lead us to this place of desperation. It gets us to the place where we're ready to say, we need God to show up the only solution that we have is not to try harder to be better. The solution that is going to actually fix things will be God intervening, which is the heart of the message. The law here is getting us to the Savior. John is applying the law to help us recognize our need. Here's how how it's put in, in the book of Galatians. Galatians 3.24. We'll put it up on the screen. It reads like this. The law so the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. The, uh, King James, Some of the older versions would put it like this. The law is our schoolmaster. Schoolmaster is the one who's in charge of getting the students where they need to go. Uh, in, in the slums of Kibera in Nairobi, Kenya, we worked with a school, and it was right on the edge of the slum. They had this massive concrete wall, so if you got you went outside of the schoolyard, you were in the Kibera slum, and it was just a massive people. I think it's over a million people living in these little uh, uh, huts that they've constructed, and. Um, The schoolmaster was the one who would come out and all the kids would be playing in the schoolyard and just messing around and doing different things, but the schoolmaster would be the one who, when the bell would ring and everyone is going back into class, they'd be responsible to get every student where they need to go. The schoolmaster was superintending the students to get them where they needed to be. Sometimes the schoolmaster would have to leave the property to go retrieve a student. They'd have to go outside of that concrete wall and walk down the narrow paths of the slums with human excrement and, you know, people who who are desperate and and therefore dangerous, and they'd have to walk to to the hut of the individual and get the student and walk them back to the school. The schoolmaster was looking after the students. So Galatians 3 tells us the law is our schoolmaster. It's our guardian. It's our tutor. Here's what the law does. One of many things it can do but the law gets us to where we need to be. The law reveals our need so that we are prepared for the Lord. The law reminds us that we can't earn our way into heaven. If we had all the, rule, all the rules in the rule book and we just tried a lot harder, we still wouldn't make it. I mean, ask the Israelites, their law of the land was the literal law of God. They had every rule. They knew everything and it didn't work out. It wasn't just a matter of them not trying hard enough. It was a matter of the heart. So John the baptizer comes along with this incredible message of judgment and ethics and finally salvation. Verse 4, prepare the way for the Lord. Here's what you're doing, John. You are getting people ready for the Lord. And verse 6, the surprise line in all of it, and all people will see God's salvation. Here's what you're doing, John. You are preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins Here's why. So that all people will see God's salvation. See, God is going to do something and and we might not recognize our need for it. Um, My daughter gave her life to the Lord recently and we celebrate that and we talked through it uh, over and over. Leading up to it, she she really, you know, Dad, I, I, I want to talk to you about this. I want to do this. And we just kept talking. And we've had this conversation, so I think it's appropriate for me to share here. But over and over, one of the things that's hard for Reese is to recognize her need. And the reason why is she is the best kid she is so good and so sweet and so kind. She cares desperately about rules and keeping them. She's emotionally intelligent, so she's paying attention to everyone and looking after them. And so this need for salvation is a confusing reality. Because if you're good, why do you need a savior? Now, she, you know, we all, even good people, love the idea of Jesus and all that he can do. But one of the things that, that people often struggle with, and especially church people, is we try really hard. And so then we don't really understand why we would need a savior. But a part of the ministry of John the Baptist is to level the playing field. Look, the law reminds you, you can't earn your way to heaven. You can't do it in your own strength. You you can't perform in a way that's gonna warrant God opening up the pearly gates to you. You need the Lord. You need this salvation. And that's what John is declaring. All people will see God's salvation. So the question then begins to show up. Are you the savior? John, your message is incredible and everyone's coming out to you and all these different people, people who are far from God are coming to be baptized by you. Are you the Messiah? Look at this. Verse 15, the people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. And he says, no way. Listen, I am not him. There's one coming after me who is far greater than I am. John answered them all, I baptize you with water. I've got some water here. I can take you into the Jordan River. I can dunk you. I can cleanse you. I can prepare you. But there's one coming. The one whose straps of his sandals I am not worthy to untie. There's one coming. I I dunk you in water. He's going to dunk you in the Holy Spirit and with fire this is different. This is categorically different. There's one coming far greater than John the Baptist. I'm the forerunner to him, John is saying, but he's coming. And when he gets here, you'll know he will dunk you in the Holy. He'll baptize you with the spirit of God and with fire. He will purify you in a way that the water of the Jordan river never could. He's going to do an incredible work, and he is the judge. Verse 17, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. He's the judge. In the words of the New Testament, he comes to judge the living and the dead. He's the one that everyone will stand accountable to, and he is coming, but he is the Lord's salvation, and this is good news. In fact, it summarized at the conclusion of his ministry there that he went around continuing to preach the good news. So here's the message then. Jesus, pay attention to him. The voice of the prophet is declaring this incredible message. There is one coming who is great. It is God's saving work. It is the Lord's Messiah. Pay attention to him. Get yourself ready. Prepare yourself for him recognize your need of repentance and confession and faith for what only he can do. He is God's salvation. Well, voice number two, and this will be brief, but this is the voice of the Father of God, Father God. This comes in verses 21 to 23, so three short verses, but this is the second voice, the second message, and it reads like this. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. That's the event. Jesus goes out to John the Baptist, he goes into the River Jordan, he's under the water, he's out of the water, and then the Holy Spirit descends on him in bodily form like a dove. And all of a sudden, all attention is on him, everyone's eyes are fixed on him. What is happening right now? And then we hear this, this voice, the voice from heaven. You are my son, whom I love, and with you I am well pleased. This time God is speaking, and he's saying, this is him. This is my beloved. This is my son. This is the one in whom I delight. His voice, the voice of the Father is saying, here he is. This is the great one. This is the Messiah. This is my salvation. So two voices, two messages, but one effect. What does that do to people? Why is this here for us? Why did Luke record this for us? What is he trying to accomplish here? What's the effect of this? Well, in both cases, both voices and messages lead us to this conclusion. Jesus is incredible. God wants our attention to be on him and what he has come to do. He wants us to recognize the uniqueness of him for salvation. He wants us to recognize our need for him, that we are a people who need repentance and faith. He's leading us to this moment where we recognize Jesus is Lord and he is salvation. So then the question we have to ask is, are we trusting him then? Are we entrusting our lives to him? Do we believe him to be the Savior? Or are we still clinging to our good, to our good works? Jerry Bridges puts it like this. He says, look, Christians, they're, they're addicted to the performance treadmill. We just want to prove, we just want to prove how good we really are. And we keep going back to it over and over and over again. God is reminding us again today, what we need is not to be better people. We need to trust ourselves to this great Savior. We need to entrust ourselves to his finished work for us. That will change us. That will that'll change the way that we behave. That will change our ethic. We will live faithfully for God. We'll want to walk along his path. We'll want to follow his ways. We'll want to practice righteousness. We'll be generous. But the reason why is not so that we can earn our salvation. It's because we've received it in Christ. And we love him and we adore him and we, we want to please him. You see, this way of salvation is what God is leading us to. The voices confirm Jesus is Savior. So let's trust him. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, we are grateful for the testimony of your word that leads us to the reality of the significance of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Lord, I pray that everyone who can hear the sound of my voice in this moment, by your spirit, would be so amazed by who he is and what he's done. That all of us would worship him in this moment. For those who've not yet made that decision of faith, Lord, to trust you for salvation, would you, in this moment, give them the courage to take that step? To say, I want him. I want what he is offering. I want to stop trying so hard so that I might give myself over to him. I believe in him for salvation. Lord, I pray for all of us that even as we worship now that you would help us in this moment to connect with you, our Savior. We pray in your name. Amen.